Kia ora koutou and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Jeremy, I'm here with Arch and Tash. And we have a very special guest this, I was going to say this week, but it's this month, um, because our monthly schedule is the usual schedule. Welcome, Anthony Hoite. Kia ora. It's great to have you here. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, you have recently returned to New Zealand, mm-hmm. to Aotearoa, from 25 years or more in London. 30. 30 years in London. Yeah. So, um, talk about what took you there and what brought you back. So, I was um, studying architecture at the school, um, at the Auckland School, and uh, finished in 89. And back in those days, the school was quite different from what it is today. So, we were we were studying, um, well, we were researching and reading deconstructivism. So, we were probably reading Foucault, Derrida. Derrida. Yeah, we probably had... (laughs) Um, crazy drawings in by mor- morphosis we were looking at. Um, it was kind of a hybrid of uh, postmodernism, deconstructivism, whatever that was. Uh, drawing was alive. There's a real craft, yeah. Um, and people like Simon Tooze, um, Albert Rifferty. So there was a really, really good, and that was also probably to do with Pat Hanley and Claudia Ponhealy being really, so it was really, really good um, drawing draftsmanship tradition there, although that was um, slightly. Uh, bizarrely um, suffused with French structuralism, which I uh, didn't quite get. But I think, in retrospect, I think it's partly partly fueled by Mark Wigley um, having um, co-curated the Deconstructivist show with Philip Johnson at MoMA. Um, and you can imagine we were all pretty eager students. And I think at Academy Editions publication to come out and do Deconstructivist. So we, so the time in the school. Um, Totally different from today. It was a time when um, also people like Daniel Lieberskin were around, and so drawings were very um, hieroglyphic, difficult to read. Section was the plan, plan was the section. Uh, everything was inside out, and so it was um, a little bit of an ideological um, chasing tales in terms of the teachers trying to understand what the students were doing, who were trying to sidestep any kind of subscription to meaning, um, and that's it was highly metaphorical and then I left um, then I went uh, sorry I went, did another year at the engineering school because um, I had a kind of strong interest in, in maths and engineering you mean as a separate program or yeah no, I just did them co-jointly uh-huh. uh, so um, and yeah, just, uh, they didn't have a structural engineering program they had a civil engineering and I studied under um, Peter Lowe uh, who was uh, bless him he's, he's not with us anymore and um, and yeah that was structures and became really good at fluid mechanics, weirdly. And <laughs> probably because I lived on an island. And um, and then finished that. And then I watched Italia 90. owned a Fiat 124. And thought that's good enough reason to go to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> like completely hairbrained. And then went there. Didn't know Italian. Right. And then flew into Rome. And then figured you probably good idea to learn Italian if you're going to survive. And so then I went to Perugia, the University of Perugia in Umbria for two months until I ran out of money. And then I thought I'd get a job. And then I went to pretty pretty tough times, actually. It sounded probably um, romanticising it now, but it was pretty uh, hand-to-mouth existence because in Italy, young architects didn't get paid. Yeah, you, you know, you stayed at home. So that was pretty tough. But um, luckily, I... I knocked on the door and there was a guy who's taught at um, bizarrely Cooper Union working in Firenze and then he gave me a job making a model and then I did that and then one thing led to another and then the Auckland School got invited to the Biennale 
the um, in, in Benali Dimnazia. This is 1991, yeah? Yeah, so mm. then ditched the job and did um, hand-to-mouth in Venice, which was also like, uh, and we just, so that was um, Kerry Morrow was there with Ross and Chris Adams and Andrew uh, Barry from the school, Glenn Watt, um, who I'm also missing, uh, Simon Tuzu, Nigel Ryan, and there was a, um, a contingent of, uh, let's say, New Zealand academics and um, and students, all from the Auckland School, who participated in this exhibition, which was permeated by some pretty flash names, Isazaki, Tom Main, and uh, I can't even remember them now. But anyway, it was it was just very odd to suddenly be from NZ and then suddenly in this place, which is the hot spot, and, mm. and it still is today. So Venice. Is still is still the can of architecture, and, and and it felt like at the time too. You know, it's real red carpet treatment. Um, you know, apparel spritz and sort of all, and all that. Uh, but it was amazing. It was it was an amazing time to be a student to see all these pavilions um, and and to see architecture unfolding in front of your eyes. Of course, it's different today with the web. You know, it's yeah. just like going to design and see it all. Yeah, but it was, it was just it was amazing. That's how I ended up going on all. Gulf War had just happened and just bought a one-way ticket and then didn't really think about it and then, then after a year of real struggle in Italy I ended up in um, London which had just uh, gone through you know a major sort of crisis the early like, 90s big yeah, crash Black yeah. Wednesday yeah so I got there I was like so like one, one struggle to another so um Started off working at a pub, then from a pub managed to find a practice, Evans and Charlotte, they were teaching at the AA, and then a, from that matter, sort of AA crew, um, Nigel Coates, so I worked at Branson Coates for a while, until Nigel overspent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a separate episode. Um, but it was quite funny, actually, because we, we did this project in Tokyo, the Tokyo War, where basically all the bricks in this project were all shipped from Italy. <laughs> and they pieced together this sort of wall in the fashion district of Tokyo, but it was kind of crazy projects and um, Nigel Blessing then went on to become the the, the, the head of um, the Royal College of Arts but it was again to go from New Zealand and suddenly in this office called Branson Coates where it's all fashion you know mm. he, he said it was narrative NATO narrative architecture today again one of those epochs which came and flew and then sank mm. And it was the fashion, you know, and I'd never seen anybody take fashion seriously. You know, this is like what serious, this, you know, deconstructivist fashion talk, which was um, kind of interesting. And then years later, I heard FAT, which is fashion, architecture, taste. So all, all the reference fields, which I'd understood in Auckland, all out the window. They said the Brits were much more um, popularist, um, post Archie Graham, having fun, uh, and totally the opposite of anything I'd seen in Auckland. And so. Stuck with that, and, and then, um, but but then, meanwhile, still in the nineties, it was it was horrific economically. So after qualifying, I think after three years of outside NZ, I um, qualified as a home student. So then, had an interview with Peter Cook in the lift. It really was got in. I said, "Can I come and do a masters?" Because it was it was the old days of the. Um, post-professional masters. So the did, Architectural Association or somewhere else? It was at the Bartlett. At the Bartlett, okay. Yeah, and then, and it was a bit like that, you just had to push in, just p- push in, and we took the lift, I remember, from the ground floor to the to the library on the fifth floor, and he said, sure, turn up on Monday. And then, um, <laughs> so, 
And I, I think how they read it, they read who you've been working for, where you've come from, you can probably crack that thing. And um, and that was also a, a sort of lesson, and I know Ian Ritchie had the same sort of technique, is that they don't use portfolio to assess. You can, as you guys know from your 76 rooms, um, talking unlocks all forms of intelligence. <laughs> so, you know, non-visual, and, and often they were like that. You just, you can, by interrogation and interview and conversation, you can unlock all forms of knowledge and secrets and all kinds of and so anyway and our listeners just feel very privileged <laughs> <laughs> yeah so then I went to uh, the masters I had a bit of a scuffle, scuffle at first because I thought I was an overseas student sort of trying to whack me with 10 grand a year then I pitched back then I was a home student because of the year in Italy and the two in the UK they relented so then I got a home student fees which was negligible at the time and we were on this super after so after Venice Biennale it was suddenly on this rock and roll course you had Peter Cook, who were just people just flying in, flying out. So that, that, that year of the Masters, uh, we had uh, my personal tutors were er- Eric Marais, Neil Denari, and Daniel Liebeskin. <laughs> oh, no, <wow. laughs> well, it sounds really flash, but in reality, they were just flying. They, you know, they'd be you'd see them three times a year. Yeah. On, on, yeah. On, they're on the way to the Reberg lecture or mm. somewhere. But it didn't really matter. It didn't really matter. They, you, you know, probably to be honest, sometimes thirty minutes with somebody interesting is probably better than mm. um, than, than hours somewhere else. So, and also that was the rise that I saw of um, a franchise education when architectural schools now have star architects and and Peter knew that from the AA. So Peter, by this time, had left um, because he wasn't given the chair. Had this is Peter Cook. Peter Cook yeah, had gone from the AA with Christine Hawley over to East London, done really well there, and then over to the Bartlett. And then, and the Bartlett to this day, I still think it's, I think it's number two ranked um, undergraduate school in the world. So it's still, I think CJ Lim's running it, and pretty pretty intense place too to study. You, know. you liked it though? I loved it. I mean, they, the cheetahs throw a model out the window. Really, it's that. And it's, uh, and the, the, the ethos is um, productivity. You have just got to produce a lot of work because, you know, um, well, as you say, practice makes perfect, but, you know, one model, do another model, do a better one, mm. another one, another mm. one. And that's, and that's it. You can see it in these offices. So when, by the time I got to places like um, MBRDV and worked in the Netherlands and Meccano and stuff, you there's a massive cohort of interns who are just producing scheme oh. after scheme. And, you know, I know the same happens in Japan <coughs> where they, you just, you know, dare I say, it's not the best employment conditions for a young architect. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, I did ask, like, do you go and work for free? somebody really really interesting and burn yourself and do that for a year or two but get an amazing education mm-hmm. and also a bunch of contacts or, or not so but of course that culture is probably dying a bit I suppose so how were you getting by financially in London when you're studying and um, I was working for Salbrook and Hutton oh so you were working on the yeah yeah and that's the other thing I always tell my um, master's students here the final year students you should be working yeah there's too much sitting around you can you can definitely work two days a week and do a really good um, master's thesis because uh, with less time I think you become a better designer because you become speed you, know, mm-hmm. you become fast you have to keep nimble you know days of getting up and having a cappuccino cigarette mulling around and thinking about reading a book probably not the approach to design so what I learned from in practice is um, the commercial pressures and the need to stay alive forces you as a designer to like you know, and that's the real world 
which which I, I only seen in practice, you know, just commercial. So we work on a so in the Netherlands we have a competition, maybe thirty thousand square meters, which is probably a library of five floors. You've got six weeks and four people, and you get on with it. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, you may, and invariably it comes off, except when they print the drawings at the wrong scale, and you've got the site ninety five percent too small. But no, but generally it works, and it's hypothetically. No, but, <laughs> but architectural competitions are a form of like uh, like like physical competition. You know, you pitch yeah. yourself, mm. you sprint competition, you so. sprint in, you eat. Oh God, it was like in the RDV they used to have pizza boxes, mountains of them. It's disgusting. You'd have ashtrays and, you know, it was, you know, there are some architectural practices you go in and like say Foster's, which are really beautiful, you know, marble, travertinus, whatever, mm. bank stair with a um, gorgeous woman at the top and a glass table on an iMac. But actually I found that there a lot of the, particularly the Dutch officers who are really innovative uh, look just like um, trash. They were just totally trashed because they were working on crazy deadlines, couldn't give a toss what the environment was and then pizzas flying in and out and beers and, you know, but, you know, I don't know how much this is particularly sustainable, but it was, yeah, it was it was fun. Mm. And I know all the, all the big offices were, Zars were doing the same. You, Those offices are running 24 hours a day. When we talked to Ma Yansong, do you remember he talked mm-hmm. about how he did 100 competitions in two years? Mm. That's right. And one, like one or two. Mm. So that mode of work, mm. you, you carry that now? That idea of like um, throughput, more options, more iterations, gives you more choice. So it's an act of discernment and, and production yeah. as opposed to say one of refinement where you have fewer, because that's a valid mode too. You make fewer iterations, but you polish them mm. to a higher sheen. Yes, and I know it doesn't necessarily work well with um, the sort of the contemporary culture of education. You know, where students are quite, let's say, probably more empathetic with their surrounds and their, so therefore the, the terrain is quite different. Psychologically. Yeah, emotionally and psychologically. So, yeah, it probably would push be a bit quite demanding. But, you know, it's only because well, it's something good, I suppose. Um, otherwise, why do it? Um, but that means you do have to think differently. So, for sure, things you you can't there's some things in practice you can't do in an education format. So, it's just um, I wouldn't say softer, but it's certainly uh, different. Whereas in private practice is a different different space yeah. because I think of the, ultimately because of the commercial mechanics. And if you're doing innovation too, the strike strike rate for doing competitions, really good competitions, is so low. And also the cost of doing them. Mm-hmm. So all those officers, so McCann, um, for example, you have 150 people, you'd have 40 to 50% would be interns coming through the Erasmus program from wherever in Europe. They get part, partial funding from the European EU. So those practices have them, you'd have them from three to six months. Um, you have to. I ran. I ran teams of. You know, probably. Um, yeah, so my job in there was basically running, doing acquisitions, and basically just you're moulding students. You get some student for a Spanish student and a Polish one, and maybe some of the English is not good. You got to quickly figure out what their skill sets are. Uh, so in a sense, there's this whole competition apparatus being subsidised by the EU. I didn't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> no, <laughs> That's what yeah, it yeah. Like. yeah. No, I mean, that, I mean, because you would. The, the EU grant was called the um, Leonardo da Vinci Mobility Grant and that funding which I think is still around today in relation to, to young architects was to allow them to be mobile and go to other parts of the European Union right. and do traineeships 
And so when I was in the Netherlands between, um, you know, late, mid-90s to the mid-noughties, it was inundated. And the Netherlands was the hot spot, you know. It was, so those officers would tend to have Dutch uh, uh, natives doing the delivery and the execution and administration. But the innovative space um, had to be run through through younger, certainly. Sorry, Denise. Uh, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what. Yeah, that is because innovation is it's uh, risky. It's entrepreneurially risky. So and it's not profitable. No, because you most no. of the time you won't win the job. But but look, if you look if you are that kind of office and you are trying to innovate, look at Oma. It's the same thing. Mm. You will burn, burn, and you'll be making modelling, and yeah. you will, um, and and it can be, it can be very ferocious. So, and there's, but there's no shortage of people sticking their hands up to no. be part of that because they know that the learning opportunity is phenomenal. Well, how much does it cost to do a master's? And mm. then how much does it cost? You know, you, you could offset that and go and work for Omar. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I, I don't begrudge them, but but it is warfare. Mm. It is, you know, you, you'd have to be pretty thick skinned to go into that environment. Did you work for Omar yourself? No, no, I just know because I was working in Rotterdam, so there oh. was the holy trinity of um, MVRDV. Um, we, um, no, they're in Delft. Um, oh, right. Um, uh, um, Omer, MVRDV, and um, the best of the lot, I think, is actually um, Neutlings at Riedijk. Young Neutlings is an amazing architect. Mm-hmm. Probably not so well. He's the, he did the Mars uh, Museum, which is the square, the, if you imagine the Guggenheim, mm-hmm. but not round, but cubic. <laughs> well, you've yeah, got Neutlings, and he built, they built it in Antwerp. It's amazing. Oh, really? I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just Guggenheim, cubic. Yes. Taller, so you take the elevator and stand and, <laughs> and then go around. spiral around. But instead of spiraling around as a, as a uh, walkway, it's actually public spaces. So you go from uh, so it's gallery public spaces, which are and, and, and views over the over the the Mars. So. Presumably, you could have stayed in that part of the world, but you went to London and set up your own practice. Yes, yeah, so it was a big yeah. That was a big call actually. So um, this would have been about coming towards the millennium. Um, had registered in the Netherlands as an architect. That took some a lot of effort, actually, because the first there was only one other New Zealander who had registered as an architect, and and that was I think one of the guys from S three three three. And so they had some paper trail, but otherwise you had to, I had to get all the course from Auckland and get it all um, calibrated against the. Mm. So it was it was really difficult, but eventually. Um, and then Mikado supported the application, and that was really good. And then got registered. And then, yeah, why didn't I stay? Um, because the downside is when you go and set up practice is you spend, you know, a whole lot of time um, doing stuff which, uh, you know, administration. And, yeah, you don't do as much what we call purely design. It's design in an entrepreneurial sense. You mean you didn't realise about the admin side until you were too deep into it? No, I knew, I knew. I just, I guess, I, I guess, the, I mean, I know the reason why. is because it, at one point you have certain autonomy of um, opinion. So at one point you say, you just, well, I can't do this in the office. And they say full mm. control. And, um, and then that often leads to, particularly by this point I was dealing with, I was in a director of a role and then you're either going to fall out with mm. yeah I mean you know if you're able to look at Omar and you can see the churn of I know Marina Graf is still there but the, you know it, it, it does become and McCann was the same thing you know they had when I joined there was uh, four four directors with quite distinct roles and by the time I left 
there was one with a different kind of configuration of the company. Because that's that's what you know they're quite liquid. Yeah. Yes. And and so therefore I have a lot of respect for when I find practices which particularly, particularly husband and wife ones like Salbrook and Hutton, incredible you know partnership to maintain a relationship and a practice and, and actually be serious about it. Is, but it's quite a common model. Yeah, that's right. It turned out. Stern. Yeah. Mm. So you went back to London. So then sort of that. That um, the Netherlands, the big Venix projects, and the way the Dutch had structured the 90s and all the big funding of those projects were going to come to the end, and the future for the Dutch offices lay outside, which is what happened. They all became even bigger after, after the millennium. So I decided to go to the UK and just set up. So at the time, I was teaching um, at the Bartlett and um, doing these crazy weeks. So uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in Rotterdam. Thursday in Brussels, Friday in London, Saturday in London, and then back to Brussels on Sunday. And I did that for four years. Oh. On Taylor's and Eurostar. No, it was a bit, it was a bit, it was a bit manic. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> but fun, but, but manic. I think it was difficult. It was probably difficult to live with because you keep, keep yeah. changing. But, yeah. What was what? Was it totally your own practice in London? No. So when we started, there goes the thing about the four practices. Um, w is advisor, Cordell advisor, and she is now teaching in London. H was H Hoyte. Um, a was Sarah Allen, and she now works for a developer in, in London. And T, Robert Tormey, is now a professor in, um, in Trier. So you can imagine we... Uh, this would have been um, this would have been what period this would, be? would have been 2002-ish um, I decided I had enough of working for a practice to make a jump and then three other buddies and we thought we yeah, the same thing but I think we it never really went because the other three didn't give up the day jobs <laughs> and I, by this time I'd already gone and so yeah, so that probably, as a name, we sort of joke was maybe was the best thing about the partnership. The, the, the acronym um, became the name of the company, and then, and then they. But to be fair, they're all doing what they're doing today. What they were, what, what caused them not to do what they could have done 20, 20, 20 odd years ago. But what was effectively your, yes. effectively your practice? Yeah, that's right. And then I got in. So I started as what architecture, and then I got into trouble because the RABA said, well. You can't be an architect because you're not registered in the UK. And they said, but I'm registered in the Netherlands. And they said, yes, but we don't recognise Dutch qualifications unless you're a European citizen. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, then I, uh, so then I just started using the word architect with a K for a while to get around the act. But that didn't, <laughs> it didn't, but that didn't seem very grown up. So then I decided to um, get REBA registered. And so that's how I got to do it. And I did that that one through a mixture of part three and getting a citizenship. How would you describe what your approach to architecture in terms of your built work was that you created for what in that period? Uh, I think it was kind of playful. We were mm. I think the first projects we did was actually kind of very New Zealand project was done we were working on a uh, children's centre and and there it was in a part of Hackney and no money. It was about getting mothers back to work and therefore providing affordable childcare. And the only way to do that was to provide a cheap nursery. So the cheapest way of building on you from NZ was painted block. So that sort of was just a painted block. And I even remember the time bemoaning that the block in the UK was not really 
not really even that cheap enough. You know, it was still quite refined. Yeah. So you couldn't find this really, you know, the classic. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a really cheap vanilla. <laughs> no, 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 it was kind of like a semi-posh one, which wasn't, yeah. didn't look very good. Anyway, so we ended up doing this concrete block thing and then um, and then just painting it, literally. But probably painted quite garish colours. Consulted the local neighbourhood, which was quite um, a West Indian, West African. So they gave us sort of carte blanche to be a little bit louder than most. And um, in the end, we won, we won, we ended up winning um, the uh, RBA National Award for Education and then the paint company, which had supplied the paint, gave the nursery a lifetime supply of paint. <laughs> so when we went back to them and said, let's just imagine, we just paint the, paint the whole building. It was, it was, it was, I don't know, 50 shades of green when we did it. And then we said, well, let's go back and paint it blue and every year just yeah, paint it. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's how that project. So we got into schools and then from schools, um, I decided after that project called the Hilltop Nursery, which had um, a rubber roof, it's quite quite cool. Um, rubber play roof that I wanted to get the children in the next project involved in the design process, you know, rather than just say stamping hands on yeah, on yeah. walls and stuff. And um, the next project was in Hillingdon, which is um, Boris Johnson's um, electorate. So um, on, I remember on the way uh, way driving there, we, we was going past Legoland, and we went, oh, Legoland, Legoland, and we sure enough, went into Legoland, and then Kaching. Um, why don't we use the Lego bricks to start as a design model? Because we, we'd had in the previous project um, trying to do inclusive design, and then you can't do that with adults. You know, they look at you because architects, you know, mm. well, I don't know about you, but thanks to Auckland School of Architecture in the late 80s, we were pretty good at you know, doodling. And so adults get sort of embarrassed and so they don't participate. And so we found that by using bricks, which is pretty inclusive, everybody was modeling. So cut a deal, the entrepreneurial side of me, with Legoland, um, two and a half thousand bricks per student, 400, can maths on that? But it was quite a lot of bricks, so we got them all, uh, bought them off Legoland, then we gave them to these kids, then we set up this curriculum for a year um, about doing art classes with each class, um, and here was the trick. This you, is the primary school, right? Yeah, this is the Lego, it's, a, it's um, called Cowley, it's, it's got the beautiful name, Cowley St. Lawrence, um, and... Church of England Primary School and Children's Centre. If you ever see the acronym, <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. But anyway, um, so what happened was we, the, the um, so the staff. This is the time where Blair had introduced Every Child Matters, and this was a, in the wake of a murder of of a, of a child, and the and the social services and education were all brought brought to bear. And it, it led to um, a, a major um, sea change in childcare. So they put out this policy, policy Every Child Matters, and schools like the one in Hillingdon um, were in the sort of really low um, docile in terms of um, deprivation. And um, so we got all these bricks, all cool. And then, then I realised actually with, when you give Lego to children, they all just go for the colours. They don't even look at the form of the brick. They just... So then we took all the colours and we split them. So we gave one class the white ones and one class the yellow ones and one class the red ones and then we had some new crazy colours like the pink ones. And that made it easy for us to track which classes mm. were doing what because right. we knew. <laughs> and they were devising the design of a school. Yeah, so we so we started off doing some basic, you know, like um, pixel art using, you know, e-boy. Well, e-boy is a sort of, you know, 8-bit graphics. So we started off doing like, um, you know, and this is spread over the over, over a year of, of um, art curriculum, 
So to start off doing that, and then it sort of gets towards the end of making making the school, and then so by the time we got to school, the kids were making things like I don't know bridges, uh, gates, and that sort of became the sort of idea that we would just do this sort of hybrid bridge because it has to con- connect two schools, the old school County St Lawrence with the new school of um, no sorry Cowley with St Lawrence, and and a gate because that's the portal they come in every day and then so the objective of your project was to connect those two institutions yeah, yeah, or do a new building as well no a new building which we connected uh-huh. and then we sort of and you know we ended up making it obviously it was lego brick so it kind of looked like a lego brick you know look, actually it's quite blocky and then and then it, i don't know how when we sort of realized that actually why instead of just um, designing with it why not try and make the school out of the um, lego bricks so then we went to the next step and trying to get the um, to get the compliance thing because if you want to light a barbecue, I recommend you could use Lego bricks. Eh? Yeah, they <laughs> they're pretty good. So when we when we cleared that using um, 3M had had a coat an intermittent coating product which could solve that problem, and then we only had the smaller issues of so we had a 400 square meter uh, external area and we had I don't know, about. 400 kids roughly at a square metre each and so we said every child matters we would basically assign a part of the exterior surface of the building to each child and then it was just a, a question of negotiation with the school as to what they would look like Yeah. so we started off with that um, it would be sort of a white building with the, the imprints of each child um, sort of black so it's that sort of, so it had some sort of um, formal logic it had white bricks black and the Children would sort of model themselves, and then it got a bit crazier later because the children then found out that if you go to Legoland, you could get these little figurines. So then we had to incorporate them into it, and then we had to, then the school said, "Can you write their um, values?" So then we had to look at how can you pixelate, which we figured out in bricks. And but it was amazing because we ended up having um, so in the office we had just bricks everywhere. We had people modelling. I remember selling um, one of the it was like a, an artwork. I put it in the Royal Academy. We ended up selling it. So it was just, um, and I, kind of, I guess it's that time, you know, maybe it's because of London, maybe you could do the same things here, but, but it was kind of fun and wild. We were having kind of loads of fun, um, seeing if we can get it through, and yeah, we got it, got it through. It was a bit, you know, um, yeah, it was kind of fun. And then, uh, and then what happened, and then the crash happened. Mm-hmm. This was 2008. Yeah, this is 2007. Yeah, we just finished that. We were about to line up to the next school. Which was a stacked uh, school with a stacked playground. So I think it was basketball onto netball, onto tennis, onto football, whatever. It was an inverted pyramid because this school in central London didn't have enough um, outdoor play area. But we got squashed. Blair left. Incoming government squashed. <laughs> so building schools for the future got binned. And then suddenly we had to change sector like quickly. I was going to, yeah, small, I think at the time it might have been 15, 20 people. And you can be finished uh, really, you know, really, really quick. So we um, sort of moved into a bit of housing. That was the main switched into housing. And then after a couple of years of quite mediocre work, working, you know, London, probably like Auckland, working for developers where the, you were squeezed on fees. So there's always joke that a feasibility study is the ability for the client to pay fees. So, or decent fees. And um, so we're getting squeezed on fees and there was no design... Uh, um, ambition in the project and so you sort of ask yourself why are you doing this you know like it's like the death knell of architecture 
So um, one day with a client, um, I decided to team up with him and then go out and try and buy a site and get into development. And then, uh, and then we found a railway station, Shoreditch railway station, and then. Um, and we bought it at an auction. It's like total hairbrain. Like basically, um, put a mortgage on the, on the house. Yeah. To buy a train station, <laughs> yeah. which was no longer being used, and um, it was short at train stations. The location was amazing, and um, bought it at an auction. Then spent the next. This is sort of t- 2010, 2011. Then spent the next couple of years trying to get a uh, planning gain on it. So the problem is we bought this railway station, which Tessa Jow, who was the Minister of Heritage and Culture at the time, said, it's, uh, it's, not, it's nothing. Because as soon as we bought it, everybody said, oh, it's, it's so quaint. It's the, yeah. last, it's the last Victorian station at the end of the, at the terminus of Shoreditch Line. And so we got massive resistance from, um, from the local authorities who would, would keep refusing planning. We tried one where we put the old station on top of the development to crown it. And we tried another one. We built development on top of the station. Anyway... By the time I got given a planning gain, the, the scheme was so banal. So a planning gain is development rights. Yeah, right. yeah, that's right. And we'd spent a bit of money. But luckily we had um, made money, more money, by um, holding raves. <laughs> Parties. <laughs> yeah. And if you go if you ever go online, you go short at station in that golden period of 2014. So I found myself as an architect booking, <laughs> booking DJs. And I think my high point was when I booked um, this Russian DJ called, uh, not, her name's Nina Kravitz, who's a techno. And then remember having to negotiate her rider, which is like, I'm just thinking, like, where in architecture <laughs> school did I, yeah. get this, did I get to do this? And so we had um, raves and they were really good. So you get, because the amount of money you make on a bar, so you know, get a thousand people paying 20 quid to get in. And then you got, on, it's the bar where you make all the money. Mm. Yeah, and then you hire bouncers. And then, um, although we ran into problem with the, uh, through noise, and so um, we ran, ran a few of these. Um, and then we did um, hot tub cinema, which sounds gross, but it, the 20 year olds loved it. It's basically a hot tub, uh, 35 quid each, um, pay for your Prosecco on top, get in. And there's a film at the end, you can just watch, you know, see. How many hot tubs did you have? Oh, it's probably about 20, 20 hot tubs. So 35, it's about 200 quid, you know. And then, and that was called Hot Tub Cinema. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to announce my retirement from the profession <laughs> of architecture. No, but the thing is, we, no, but that was under the cost just to re, repay, yeah. repay the interest. Mm. And so, um, and then my business partner got itchy feet in the end, as he like, too much time on this part. Does the station even get developed? No, today. Yeah, so we ended up selling it to my um, my business partner came from a retail background, and then said to me one day, "I want this, and I want it in thirty days." So, and so then I went back to one of the, one of the land bankers who he tried to negotiate with and just recut another deal, and we sold it to a land banker. So a land banker is um, this particular family who owns the Truman Breweries in Brick Lane, if anyone knows that, um, they own such um, uh, building assets, they're under no pressure to sell anything, mm. and they will accumulate hectares of um, old Victorian building in and around Brick Lane and agglomerate them into mm. such, a, such a packet that 
um, they will be, they'll, you know, they'll build towers in the next sort of 10 years. So mm. they're not into peanuts, like as a typical developer. So that's a kind of a business model where you're saying to someone who has no interest in property development, in fact, they think property development is a sort of peasants because yeah. they've got a longer strategy yeah. they're a 20 30 year plan and that mm-hmm. will yeah, and that's and that's huge and just remember from, from the station we bought to liverpool street was a 15 minute walk so you could see the mm. towers popping up ready and at that time london had uh, relaxed boris was rubber stamping a lot of schemes so he could he could veto um, any major development just by stamping himself and that had led to also problems where he was stamping within 10 minutes of receiving like bundles of documents but um so there was a lack of transparency, and anyway, so these, this family knew that, and it would just accumulate, accumulated. And I went off, and um, decided, paid my partner out, and decided I had um, twelve months or no more to buy another property. Otherwise, you're going to lose the money. You're just going to spend it, mm. eat it. Because I was running a practice by this time, and so the the money I'd used because architectural practice broke broke even. It's probably the best I could say. To probably doing too many risky jobs too. Um, Lego forever, but um, but then the development company started to sort of subsidise it. But I knew that if it kept doing that, that mm. was going to be mm. a problem too. So then I bought a, another property in, in another auction in Peckham in South London, which was quite probably quite I suppose it's closest to like Morningside. Or something. Is this the housing development that's in Architecture New Zealand? Yeah, that's what I bought. Yeah, so there was a developer made of CLT. Yeah, so there, but now is the. De- or in a, or being on a small scale, there, then I was acting as a developer, the architect, and the con- no, no, went back to the contracting side and just took out the contracting as well. And then that's it, just went ahead and built it. Then finished it and came here. So, and and that, um, for our listeners, is a as a housing development, isn't it? Yeah, so I bought, I bought a plot. And I think what's interesting is it's the plot's probably 350 square metres, so that's. Uh, about the size of your minimum minimum area you can build in squares in, in Auckland. It's a, it's a small sign in yeah. Auckland, yeah. So we, we could fit, um, we got four houses on it, and I say houses because each, under planning law in the UK, they have to have front doors, so to the street, not flats, which have interior mm. fire circulation. And we did it in CLT for speed, and also I have an aversion to plasterboard, I think it's sort of yesterday's material, and I was kind of reassured when I came back to NZ how much plywood I was seeing. Mm. Mm. You know, plywood. Mm. Um, so that was pretty reassuring. And there's something else that was reassured. Oh yes, I was also reassured to see auctions were being used so much in in housing because what was not so great in the UK is everybody was um, um, everyone was uh, using estate agents, and there's two beautiful words: gazumping and gazering. We get misinformation because the agents, their motivation is just to sell a property at the highest value. So people are either getting gazumped right at the end where they say, "Well, you better pay, you better um, pay more, otherwise the vendor is going to pull out." Or you know, it's a whole lot of shenanigans. Oh, so you see auctions as a more transparent. Yes, process. yes, okay, yes. So I, so I need than close tenders. We only bought in auctions. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's certainly better than using because mm. uh, there's a lack of regulation in with estate agents in the UK. Yeah, yeah, and so auctions are not cheaper. That is, they are not cheaper. They are maybe even a little bit more expensive because because you can access the property quicker. But it was, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I'm misreading it, but I slightly understood why everything goes to auction. You know, I'm not sure. Um, 
But I did want to ask you then if you had you kind of got wind in your sails as a developer doing this mm. housing development in London. Mm. Now you're back here as a lecturer and mm. professor mm. at the University of Auckland School of Architecture. What made you want that gig and how are you finding teaching? Um, two, two things. So first of all, actually, um, I thought I was going to go on and carry on in the UK. And I think um, Grant Bully and Deirdre Brown pricked my conscience about engaging in the Māori, the Indigenous project, things Māori. And you had been away and probably here's an opportunity to come back and engage. So... Um, that is number one, is because... So this is two-pronged here, not just attracting more Māori students to the university, but also um, incorporating Māori design principles or that's, educating students that's about right. them, yeah. Tauiwi students as much as... That's right, so that's quite a big... Yeah, that, that's through to admissions, through to the curriculum, through to um, participating in, uh, you know, what does Māori design look like, for example. Um, and it's all, all that kind of... That, that, that sort of space which quite keen on engaging with, which would never would have happened if it stayed on the other side of the planet. And of course, though, you do bring things with you. Do I do speculate as to how, um, if, for example, EB forests and our man-made forests here, if we could ever um, start to think about uh, from factory to fare, CLT fabrication. I know there, there was XLAM here, but I think it's Australian-owned at the moment and didn't have much competition. But um, it just seems as a, we have an amazing natural resource of man-made forests that we can't put that together. And I've, you know, I grew up partly in Kawara and there's a timber mill mm. there. And um, I know Caxton owned it. <coughs> said, so I'm going to come down and have a look. But it, those are sort of projects which, we, you know, because we have a housing affordability and that's partly tempered. What you can't have in NZ, which we have in Europe, is we had Europe, Eastern European labour and lots of it. So here you heard that partly the the crisis due to the you know lack of competition also in the in the building supply chain mm-hmm. you know which distorts you know build costs so it's really so you know all those issues quite you know whether it's from the Maori one but to, to housing um, are probably quite good things to be engaged in I suppose yeah and it sounds like a much broader approach to architectural education than you might technically think of yeah. are you teaching yeah. kind of about building systems and procurement systems as much as you're teaching about design? No, no, because I think, you know, it's funny, um, um, Bill McKay was and, and Linda also say that um, teaching practice is the most boring subject in architecture. So students, ironically, even though they might want to go off and set up practice, often don't want to talk about practice. And so all the games you play in practice and all the sort of strategies you play in, um, that might come at another time. I mean, I... In the next term, we're going to be teaching um, a new subject called transnational professional practice. <laughs> Big name. Um, and there may be some elements of gameplay in how we work and how architects are quite um, well resourced to play, you know, we, uh, whether it's spatial manipulation, uh, interpretation, you know, there's a really good skill set which equips the, ar- the architect today mm. to engage in, in ways in which other practices uh, other professions don't why is it may have improved but why are there so few Māori students of architecture in every institution uh, just Auckland? that's mainly because and if I speak to Auckland the great point um, architecture today is uh, up there with medicine and uh, engineering as a desirable uh, place to be you know, profession architect 
And that means that the grade point average has gone up to things like 240. And that probably will favour a student which has gone to a fancier school where they had probably a really good art teacher and really, you know, really good educational resources, whereas most Māori probably um, are located in more rural areas and, you know, um, where questionably the schools maybe not have the same sort of uh, resourcing. So that structural inequality that's mm. baked into the education yeah, system. But there is the there is some light coming at the end of the tunnel, though, which mm. I think is at the moment... So this 240-grade average is based on, um, let's say, a Western framework or Western, Western assessment of, um, say, high school exam results. But um, we could also think about we could give a value to, let's say, Matarama Māori or Māori knowledge systems, which mm. are not taught in, in schools, and we could assess that, and that could be compounded with other grade point averages such that in the end that they would all, then therefore you can get um, a Māori student who would have a similar 240 grade point average because it's been augmented by um, indigenous knowledge and methods mm. and so um, I know it's a, a project that Deirdre Brown and I are quite keen on uh, implementing um, which would have the bonus maybe I shouldn't describe it as a bonus but it would also encourage Pākehā Rātauevi students to engage more heavily with Maturanga Māori to and that, qualify for the school, and that is well. great, and that is really that is really amazing. That is so heartwarming to see. Actually, so I have I still haven't taught a Maori student since I went back because there's none oh, in the masters. Mm. No, no, there uh, <coughs> I've taught to Dongans, uh, but no Maori. But I have to say, on the other hand, it's really uh, quite heartwarming to see an interest in things Maori from from non Maori, which I don't think was there 30 years ago. Not an architecture mm. school, like I said, mm. we were doing Foucault and. Mm. Uh, Scolari and stuff. We certainly weren't looking at um, Kofaifai or other uh, Harakeku or something. But um, so that, that is great. So there is a, and maybe that is the, the contemporary student much more uh, emotionally and uh, empathetically connected. So whilst they maybe lose some some of the other qualities they've gained, others and towards a better understanding of a more equitable society. It sounds like from how you describe it, though, that that understanding of an equitable society is running ahead of the university's own structure of admissions mm. Um, mm. and education. Yeah. Yes, that's that's been, um, there's been some resistance and I think that's, so why has it taken, you know, if, why has it taken such, and I think that's partly to do with those who are in power at the moment. We've got a Māori Governor-General mm. uh, coming in, so that's great. And I think, you know, through the, the lecture series I've been doing, you know, if you've just got to think who who's in power, you know, whether it's... Do you think that perhaps some of the moves, you know, to embrace diversity in a more general way might change both um, the education systems and practice systems as well to mm. start to open those doors? Well, hopefully, to... and you've got, you know, and you've got really young um, Jay Kaka, you've got um, mm. um, um, Jazz Max's Walker Mind, you've got mm. really good, um, who are doing quite good empowerment, and they mm. will be, and it's, remember, it's better for the country. You know, uh, ART or New Zealand will look better for it, you know, much more inclusive, much more uh, diverse. Um, so I think we're all optimistic. So this is not, um, um, you know, I call, the, call this lecture series transcolonization because it's, for me personally, I couldn't take myself, I can't, I find it difficult to decolonise, particularly if I have a, um, my mother's from London and my father's from Waterloo Island, but I can only change. And I think that transformative quality, um, which I can see, um, the potential in the school and in practice today is amazing. So really optimistic. And so this is an optimistic country, you know, so it's quite great to be back here and hear the Tui singing in the morning and 
things, you know, optimism. And also very collegial. So after this, go to the um, Auckland Architectural Awards and, peop, you know, you ring, people just ring people and everybody's quite cool. So I find it, um, that is amazing because London is very, um, very standoffish, it's very institutionalised. Mm. You know, an architect is a professional. They'll show up and speak to the architect. <laughs> mm. And so in addition to your role um, at Auckland University, yeah. you're also um, uh, consulting to Jazzmas. Can yeah. you tell us about that role too? That's really good and that's really um, important to me. Um, Jazzmax has shifted a lot from when I left, um, you know, they were involved with Te Papa and they obviously heavily around the bicultural project, but they, they have, they've changed. They're um, different kind of leadership structures now and also they've embraced the Indigenous project through Wakamaya. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was at a, a crypt last night with... Um, um, Elizabeth Hetta, which she was running, and it's really and it's amazing to see those kinds of conversations happening now within an architectural practice. Um, so practice is important for me because it's got real world issues that sometimes you don't see within schools, and sometimes you're exposed, to, and also because it's um, interinstitutional, it's not framed around one particular space. And as I said, since Auckland has got a kind of problem that it's um, academic performing so well that it's marginalising Māori, so maybe places like um, uh, this forum last night give me greater exposure to Māori students which I, which I wouldn't get within the school. Hmm. Yeah. So you're going to build again? Yeah, I think, you know, I've said I want to be, um, yeah, I'd like to get back into practice at some point. I think my first responsibility is to the university, of course, but um, my, my aim would be to uh, work with Get the iwi forest into a factory, and then to work on fare for fana, and then yeah, six Ws. So that would be the that would be the driver, and then yeah, Cause that's that's contribution. Otherwise, I don't quite know why we mm. why we're doing this. Yeah? And yeah, and also working, you know, people like yourselves know the lay of the land much better than I do. So basically, have to have a certain little humility to find out how you can work and working with people. So I, so I registered and did the usual stuff, became an architect again. Yeah. Get your hands on some of those nice crappy concrete blocks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I nearly thought about importing them one time. It was very bizarre. <laughs> they must have been pretty expensive for you to have thought about doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but it's... And you see, it's got a great vernacular, you know. I just think it's got to move away from the private house, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be a bit more... Um, but more socially uh, relevant. So I think one of the one of the things we've talked a lot about in here, and you've t- you've talked about shifts. And we were we were educated at Auckland, and in terms of the Western focus and the people we were studying, it wasn't that much different in the mid nineties no. mm. from what you, you. This change is more rapid. Mm. But um, I think one of the other changes that's occurred over those times, in addition to what you've talked about, is a shift from the obsession with the private home mm. to the social aspect and the service aspect of mm. architecture. Mm. In a large practice, we see a lot of graduates, and I've watched just over 10 years, let alone 20, the shift from them coming to you wanting to design houses or see the idea of that as this jewel-like, mm. masterful expression of design mm. to being deeply interested in placemaking <coughs> civic and cultural projects and the spaces around them that thousands of people enjoy every day. And I've seen that change. And that's Which really great. encouraging. No, that's right. architecture is... The, the more I practice, the, the less I think architecture is about creativity and the more I think it's about service. 
you know, to a city, to all those users. And I've seen that shift. Yeah. Mm. I think private houses are lovely, but but you know they're they're for two or four people. Exactly. I mean, the reality is most people will experience architecture in a civic space. Mm. Absolutely. You know, so that's actually where we, as the profession, should be focusing our our attentions, housing, maybe, yeah, and then you know the the public realm. So that's one one thing I miss about London is um, not like house. But actually, the the, the the locale, the the place, mm. yeah. So people often doesn't really matter. Maybe if you have a fantastic area and a fantastic community, mm. you know, people are less worried if you live in a two bedroom flat. Mm. Yeah, mm. they don't care. Yeah, they, I mean, you know, you're you're on, you're on the streets. You you connect to your neighbourhood. Yeah, um, and that's far more important um, than you know, what the architecture's like. So, so stopping trying to define the neighbourhood by <coughs> the quality of the house. Mm. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and hopefully that, that shift is going. But I think I think it's evident. I think. Anthony Hoity, it's welcome back to El Turtle. <laughs> and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. I feel like we could do a whole series with you. I uh, do. I was just <laughs> sitting, I was almost going to write on the end of the episode notes, you know, part one. Because <laughs> just that story of, before you, as you put in your article, heard the first karanga to come home. Just that story of London. Mm-hmm. Train stations, raves, hot tub cinemas. You should see the slides, yeah. Uh, Did you play hot tub time machine at your cinema? <laughs> 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 no, very very meta. It was pretty cheesy. They would do stuff like car wash. And, you can, and you're just thinking like, you know, while well, we were standing here drinking margaritas, you know, probably at that age would have been, uh, oh, I would have been definitely... 20 years older than the kids in the tub and we're just going oh my god you know who would want to pay that money get in a swimsuit in a soapy disgusting that we had to clean them every day but just just not a good look but you know 20 year olds having throwing you know alcohol's going everywhere and then they were watching then they were dancing sometimes and it was, it was pretty crazy 20 year, 20 year old me approves <laughs> <laughs> Forty-five-year-old me thinks about the quality of the water. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not. But, but twenty-year-old me is like, where do, who do I give my money? <laughs> Thank you for making seventy-six small rooms young again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. Uh, kia ora, welcome. Thanks, everybody. Matewa. Well.